What a story the transfiguration is. What of all the times in the world where you might want to be someplace, what would it be like to be there with Peter and James and John as, as Jesus is transfigured before them, as the, as the curtain is pulled back just a little bit? And I, one of the things that has been so, um, how do I say this, so overwhelming to me this week as I've, as I've studied this passage is that what they're seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration, that's the real truth. Are you with me? That's not like something that only exists sometimes and is temporary and fleeting. Rather, everything else is temporary and fleeting. And the glory of Jesus in his rightful place in the kingdom with us, his people, God and man there together, that's the true reality of things. That's what's actually going on in the world. And it is for you and I to behold him and to have our lives transformed by seeing Jesus for, real, for who he really is. Man, today I've just been praying over and over that we would be a church, that we would be a people, that I would be a person, that the Combs family would be a family that lives not in the light of anything else, my own failure, my own insecurities. You should have heard me whining before worship practice this morning because I'm having a hard time keeping my shirt tucked in. I mean, you know, like there are so many things that can just be like, oh, that's the biggest thing going. And I just am praying that we would be so incredibly overwhelmed as the word, wrecked, like, like completely changed by how glorious Jesus is that nothing else in our lives would, would it would all pale in comparison to his greatness. The, and let's pick up the story just to, at the beginning. You remember, first of all, let's look at this through Peter's experience. We've been kind of following Peter. Peter stands kind of, sometimes he's the spokesperson for all the disciples. Sometimes he's kind of the one talking for, for the three, for, uh, for Peter, James, and John, that kind of inner circle. But, but it's kind of through Peter's eyes that we get to experience Jesus in this story. And, and, and what a time, you know, Peter's had because we kind of take one small section at a time and don't just, you know, like it'd be, it'd be great to just go back and read the, the book of Luke up until this point and go, what might Peter be thinking as he's walking up this mountain with Jesus? He's just finally gotten it. Do you remember last week, Peter, who does the world say I am? Well, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're a particular prophet. Some people, all kinds of different theories. And, and, but Peter, who do you say I am? And you can almost hear like, the Messiah? You know, like he's like, I think you're the Christ of God. And, there's, and he finally gets it. He's finally getting a, a, a glimpse of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, great, you're on the right track, but don't tell anybody. You have more stuff to learn. And so as Peter then gets told, actually, I am Jesus, Jesus talking here, says, Peter, yes, I am the Christ of God. I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. And I am victorious. But it's going to be a victory born of suffering and rejection and death and then ultimately resurrection. You know, you and I have categories for that. We go, oh, you mean Easter. Oh, you mean Good Friday. Yes, that's what we mean. They didn't have Good Friday. You know, Peter's hearing this stuff for the first time and he has to be going, I don't even have a category for victory through death, through suffering and rejection and death that leads to the salvation of the world. And so I think Peter has to be in a season of like, man, I just figured out who Jesus was and now I'm trying to figure it out again. I need to know more. 
Could he have even been thinking, you know, what did I get myself into? What if I like the healing ministry? I, Peter just got sent out with, with the other disciples to, to, with power over demons and the ability to heal. And you remember they came back and had great stories to tell. And what if Peter goes, Jesus, here's the thing. I'm all in for the healing part. I'm all in for the power over demons part. I'm all in for the resurrection part. I don't know if I'm in for the suffering part. Like, I don't know if I want this full package. I didn't know. When you said, follow me, and I just like left my family business and just went after you, like now I'm, I'm starting to figure out what all this means. I wonder if there was some thought of that. Peter, James, and John up the mountain with Jesus to pray. These are the th same three that were in the room when the little girl got raised from the dead uh, a couple of chapters ago, a chapter ago. Do you remember that? That everybody else had to wait outside with Jairus' daughter, but Peter, James, and John, this inner three. And you think, what's special about these three? Certainly, there's nothing you know, unique about them as men that would make them fit for such a thing, but their call was unique. Peter is going to be Peter. He's going to Rome and going to the seat of power, and he'll be the one that really shepherds the church um, after Paul is gone or in that same season uh, in Rome and and. Uh, John is going to, I mean, you think about what these men wrote. Peter is going to, to be, you know, Mark is his disciple and he's going to be the one who kind of gives us our first gospel. And, and John is going to write the gospel of John. John is going to write Revelation. John is going to write first and second, third John. James is going to be the first one martyred. Um, Stephen obviously is martyred before James, but of these men, it's going to be James in Acts 12, that uh, Herod is going to kill with a sword. These men are going to live, from our perspective, glorious Christian lives. From their perspective, very difficult lives. And it's them who Jesus takes and says, you wanna, let's, why don't you watch me raise a little girl from the dead? And then why don't you come up this mountain with me? Something special is going to happen, and I want you to see it. So these three head up the mountain with Jesus to participate in something that was very common, a very common activity. They went up to pray. Last week's passage, we saw Jesus in private prayer in view of these men. You remember, he's praying privately, but his disciples are with him. At the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, on the night that Jesus will die, um, it will be these same men about the same errand. Jesus looking at Peter, James, and John and going, hey, will you pray with me? And I don't know if you remember how they handle it there in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they handle it in exactly the same way in our story today. They are called to stay up and pray with Jesus, and they fall asleep. Verse 32 says, they were heavy with sleep. Have you been there? Yeah, I have a movie in me. Go ahead and put it on. And then 15, you're like, I didn't get past the credits. I don't know what happened. Apparently, praying with Jesus took some endurance. And I don't think we would look at that and say, you have to pray a long time to pray effectively. I think you would say, when Jesus is at moments of his life where he needs wisdom, where he is in transitionary periods, as he goes through his mission, his ministry, he sees it as good to labor long in prayer. I wonder if we would just look at our rabbi, our Messiah, and go, maybe we might be the ones. I've always heard, if you have trouble praying, why don't you try starting with five minutes a day? 
I see the benefit to that, but let me tell you, the glory, the, the, the wonderment, the, the relationship, the peace comes as you labor in prayer. So Jesus is on this mountain laboring in prayer, and the, the, uh, the, our three apostles just can't take it. They're, they're tired. They don't know what's going on anyway. Jesus knows he's headed for a cross. They have no idea where they're headed, and so they're not particularly stressed out about anything, and... They fall asleep. Their eyes get heavy. But as they wake up, you know, I wonder, and I, we don't have anything in the scriptures that says this, but, but I wonder if this wasn't a little more common than the gospel writers write it down. Certainly they didn't write down every time Jesus prayed. And I wonder if Jesus praying and we fall asleep while he does it wasn't an entirely uncommon thing. I wonder if they were used to kind of being awoken by you know, hey guys, way to go, you fell asleep again, it's time to go, you know, breakfast is ready, whatever it is. But they don't wake up with Jesus nudging them this time, rather they wake up to brilliant light. Verse 32 simply says, they awoke and they saw his glory. Man, I want to know what they saw. Don't you want to know? I mean, physically we go, they saw a bright light. Yeah, but I've looked into the sun. That's not... It wasn't that. I've had somebody have their high beams on behind me. It wasn't just like bright light. There's a, a weight to it. Glory does not just mean brightness. It means weight, right? It means like there's a, there's a, a knowledge that something deep and profound is happening. They didn't just wake up and go, man, who lit the fire too much? No, rather they woke up to the glory of God right there on this little hillside. They saw his glory. What they experienced was more than just light. I wish I was there. And remember that Jesus had just told them about his mission of suffering, of rejection, and death that would lead to resurrection. And I wonder if Peter had fallen asleep and maybe even still trying to figure that out, still trying to go, how does victory, how does death, how does rejection end up in victory? In my experience, it's been the biggest muscles that end up in victory. It's been the smartest plan that ends up in victory. How is Jesus talking about victory through suffering? I wonder if, G if Peter is like still mulling this over. Jesus seems so strong, so powerful. Who's going to make Jesus suffer? But now, there on that hill, Peter gets his first taste of actually the power of Jesus. That Jesus' power is not just shown, Jesus' full power is not just shown as lepers are cleansed and, and lame walk and um, demons are cast out. But that, even as wonderful and as amazing as that would have been, had not prepared Peter to see the true glory of who Jesus is. His actual majesty. Peter's so overwhelmed by the scene that he isn't quite sure what to say. Do you see that? He said, the, the scriptures say, he said, let's build a couple of tents because he didn't know what else to say. Just fumbling around. The word shelter, as Peter says, oh, this is good that we're here. Let us, let's build three shelters or let's build three tents. That, that word is the same word in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament for tabernacle. Peter knows that God has made good on his Old Testament promise to once again tabernacle, live with, 
dwell with his people. And Peter wants to serve. And can I tell you that a desire to serve him is the natural expression of seeing Jesus for who he is. When you see Jesus for who he is, you don't say, well, what's in it for me? When you see Jesus in his glory, you say, what can I do? How can I serve you? Man, I'm going to say this again at the end, but let me tell you, in our lives, we need good strategies and we need good habits and we need all kinds of like wisdom is huge. We have to live wise lives. But you know what really transforms us is just seeing Jesus for who he is. What we need is awe. What we need is some idea of the majesty of Jesus. Peter wants to, he's doing all he can. Let's build a temple right here. Let's build a tabernacle. And what Peter doesn't quite know, and what we'll get to in a minute, is that, no, actually, Peter, Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle, a place where man and God dwell together. Jesus is the tabernacle where man and God dwell together. In fact, Peter will someday write, hey, we are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. He will someday understand what Paul later will write, that in Christ, we are the temple, the place where God and man dwell together. We should take off our shoes. We are on holy ground. Can we, instead of worried about what does Jesus want me to do about this, that, or the other thing, just spend some time beholding his majesty? Peter barely gets these words out, and it says a cloud descends on them and overshadows them. That's very particular language. A cloud had overshadowed the, temp, the tabernacle in the desert as a sign of God's presence. The Holy Spirit had overshadowed Mary in the conception of Jesus. And now this cloud overshadows this mountain as Jesus is radiant on it. Surely Peter is in the presence of God. What would it be like to have all of this trash, all of this junk, all of this temporary stuff? It's all decaying. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know how your knees hurt? Like that, but the whole world. What would it be like to have that curtain just pulled back for a moment and just see the splendor, the majesty of Jesus? If you lived with that reality, how would your life be? What would your conversations with people be like? How offended would you be when people are mean? What would it be if we lived in the reality of what Peter's seeing there on that mountain? And then Peter hears a voice. This is my son. The voice of God. At the baptism of Jesus, the, God's voice had said, you are my son. Apparently an affirmation for Jesus, but now the same voice is pointed at the disciples. This is my son. This is for Peter and James and John. What affirmation? 
These men are going to stand up for Jesus. They're going to be beaten for him. They're going to be in prison. All, you know, two of the three of them will be martyred and the other will be in exile. All for the name of this Jesus. What an affirmation to know, to hear God say, this is the Messiah. This is my son. My chosen one. How cool that what God says is, this is my son whom I chose. Peter had just confessed that. Isn't that a wonderful little affirmation that Peter's on the right track? This is my son, my chosen one. And Peter goes, I just said that. I had just figured that out. You are the Christ of God. You're the chosen one. What an affirmation. And then the voice of God says to these men, listen to him. Nothing is more a slam dunk instruction. If you see Jesus transfigured in his glory, radiant, resplendent, white clothes, glory all around, cloud uh, in, engulfing the whole place where you are, you hear the voice of God and say, listen to him, wouldn't you? Do they? I don't think this is a head knowledge problem. I don't think that obedience to Christ, I don't think that being people of forgiveness and grace, I don't think being people of obedience, people that say no to sin and yes to him, I don't think it's a problem we don't know that Jesus is God. Rather, I think in our day-to-day -day lives, we lack the ability to, to feel what Jesus is causing these disciples to feel. And maybe you and I, instead of book after book of, of, you know, here's how to live the Christian life, should instead spend hours and hours and hours just figuring out how can I behold the glory of God? How can I behold who Jesus really is? How can I not just go, what should I do tomorrow and the next day? And what should I do about this? And who deserves my forgiveness and who doesn't? But instead, we should spend as much time as we possibly can just figuring out how great Jesus is. And let that transform us. What a moment for Peter. But you know, Luke is telling an even bigger story than that. And you know, I could easily spend several weeks on this, so I'm just going to fly through it. But if you were a first century reader, you couldn't miss this stuff. That there are so many Old Testament allusions, quotes, and pictures that are brought into this scene on the mountain that if you were reading um, Luke's gospel, I'm sure that as Peter and, and James and John are walking down, they are thinking, that was a lot like Moses and Sinai. There was a lot of stuff there that we read about when we were kids. Like we just had an experience that was exactly in line with God's presence coming to humanity in the Old Testament. Here's just a few of the pictures. First of all, we're, we're here with, well, let me say this. The Old Testament is very, very concerned with where the presence of God rests on the world. This is one of the major themes of the Old Testament. It's all through every book. 
Um, we want to know who is God's people. God says things like, uh, or, or like, you will be my people and uh, I will be your God. There's a relationship there. It starts in Eden. And the big idea of Eden, I've said this to you before, the big idea of Eden is not that it was perfect and the people had everything they need. <clears throat> the big idea of Eden is that's where God and man dwelled together. That's where the relationship of God and man was unbroken. God, people and each other was unbroken. And people in the world, people in nature is unbroken. Actually living in peace. Do you crave that? Do you long for it? Yeah, amen. This is Eden. And then it's broken. And then several thousand things happen. And then it, it comes to the tabernacle uh, after Sinai, where Moses gives the people the law. They build a tabernacle. The, they are led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the, in the day. Where have we heard light and clouds? We'll get to that. But the presence of God is with his people. Eventually, the ark is built, and it's going to be between the wings of the cherubim right there. The Old Testament is very concerned with the relationship, the place where God and people dwell together. It was Eden, it was the temple, it was the ark. And Peter and James and John are coming to terms with now. We are seeing the presence of God ourselves. It is right here that God and man dwell together. So look at all these pictures. First of all, you have the presence of Moses and Elijah. Some commentators would say, you know, Moses represents the law uh, Elijah represents the prophets. There you have all the writings of the Old Testament. Um, others would say, well, actually, Moses was a prophet and Elijah had a lot to do with the law, so maybe it's not that clean. Either way, you have these two great figures of the Old Testament that, that stand to represent all of the relationship between God and his people. This was the big idea of the prophets. This is the big idea of the law. How do God and people relate both Moses and Elijah had experiences of hearing God on mountains. You remember Moses on Sinai. You remember Elijah in the cleft of the mountain uh, with the still small voice of God as the whirlwind goes by. Moses had said someday God would send a prophet like me. Malachi had said that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah. There's Old Testament illusion after Old Testament illusion here. We are supposed to understand that what we are seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration is God making good on his Old Testament promises. Not only that, verse 31, it says that what Jesus and Elijah and Moses were talking about was, the, was Jesus' departure when he went to Jerusalem. That word departure is the Greek word that in the Greek Old Testament is the same word as exodus. Now that is a loaded word, is it not? That changes what they're talking about. They're not just talking about Jesus going, I can't wait to get out of here. How soon till I depart? No, rather they are talking about Jesus as Moses led the people out of captivity in Egypt, Jesus leading his people out of captivity too. And look, Moses is leading people out of a physical place to a physical place. Jesus is leading humanity out of captivity of sin and death. Is there anybody excited about that at all? Like this is cr a crazy, crazy moment. Not only that, they're on a mountain. The idea in the, with ancient peoples was that the gods dwelled on mountains. And you go, wow, that seems primitive. Oh yeah, where do you think God dwells? Up there in the sky. Okay, same thing. Mountains were tall, you couldn't get to the top of it. 
It's kind of what they thought the abode of God was. The Babylonians had their gods. The Canaanites had their gods. The Greeks had their gods. The Romans had their gods. They were all on top of mountains. And then, but this is the place where uh, actually the voice of the most high God speaks to his people. Yahweh is the most high God. Mountains were always places of revelations in the Old Testament, places where God revealed things to his people. Then there's this image of light. The pillar of fire led the people through the desert. Light is associated with original creation. Several times in the Old Testament, God's glory shows up as light. Then there's Jesus' face shining. Where have you heard that before? Moses coming down the mountain, his face shining because of the glory of God. Then there's the cloud that has filled the tabernacle, and now this same cloud fills the... uh, Uh, fills this mountaintop, uh, the same cloud that led people through the desert. Then there's the voice that associates with baptism, but it also associates the voice of God with Elijah in the cleft of the mountain. It also associates with Moses on Mount Sinai who heard the thunderous voice of God. Are you with me? And then, of course, there's all this temple imagery. But this is what this has really been about, that the temple is the place for God and humanity to dwell together. And, and, and James and John and Peter having this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Luke is telling the biggest story possible. Jesus is connected to creation. He's connected to the Exodus. He's connected to the law. He's connected to the prophets. He is the presence of God. There's one more way that this story connects to those Old Testament stories, especially Sinai, especially the giving of the law um, with Moses at Sinai. And that's that there's this glorious thing happening at the top of this mountain. Do you remember what's happening at the foot of the mountain uh, at Sinai? Do you remember what Moses came down to? Was it people waiting expectantly? No, rather... There is the reality of the glory of God, the reality of God dwelling with his people. And then at the foot of the mountain, there's also the reality of great idolatry. You remember as Moses comes down, what he sees is is this really hilarious and terrible scene where he, he confronts Aaron, the first priest, and he goes, Aaron, what's everybody doing? And he goes, look, they wanted a God and you were gone a long time. So I just gathered gold, threw it in the fire and this golden calf popped out. So we all just started worshiping it. Aaron lied. At the top of the mountain, the truth, the reality, the glory of God. At the bottom, at the foot of the mountain, an idolatrous and twisted generation. Do you see the parallel? Jesus comes down the mountain and and finds this just heartbreaking scene with Peter, James, and John. He comes down and there's a man with with a child who apparently has two problems. And we'll kind of kind of cover some of this material next week as we get a running start at our next passage. But for this week's purpose, this this child apparently has two problems. He has all the signs of what we would now call uh, grand mal seizures, right? He's, He's convulsing and being thrown on the ground. And also, the Scripture's clear that there's demonic activity in this young man's life. As he is healed, you'll notice it says that Jesus healed him and cast out a demon. Well, healing 
in demonic possession or what Jesus has just spent the last like four chapters of Luke undoing in Galilee. And yet he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration to find, oh, actually the problem of evil is very real, very alive, very well there in Galilee. Both of these are big ideas. Both of these big ideas are true, even though they don't feel like they could go together. One, Jesus in resplendent glory, and also a people ineffective, a rebellious culture. He walks down and finds the disciples totally lost and confused. Jesus had just sent them out with power to heal, heal, uh, heal infirmity and cast out demons. And now they've been working with this young man and they can't do anything. Why? Do you think that they are learning that they need Jesus every day? Did anybody order a pizza? <laughs> Jesus comes down to find not the disciples doing their job well, but rather comes down to find the effects of an incredibly broken culture. And I want you to see how sad this scene is. There's a child hurting. There's a father grieving. Can you put yourself there? I think we are supposed to feel what Peter's feeling at the top of the mountain. I think we're also supposed to feel what the rest of the disciples are feeling at the foot of the mountain. This tragic, sad scene. They need Jesus every day. People are suffering. This man's only son consumed by illness and demons. Evil is still alive and well. Maybe even, you know, this is a theme we kind of trace through the through the gospels maybe it is even an understanding that rome is not the biggest problem are you with me that evil that sin that our problem is not against flesh and blood but rather against the forces of evil in the heavenly places and notice that jesus is not disappointed in the disciples he doesn't go you dummies rather it's jesus is grieving over as he says, this faithless and twisted generation. Moses came down the mountain and God was so frustrated with people worshiping the golden calf. There's a, again, if it wasn't true, it'd be a pretty funny story where God goes, that's it, Moses. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to start over just with you. And Moses goes, ah, no, 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 no. What would people say? That same frustration that God has as people are idolatrous and twisted and evil and rebellious in the Old Testament is the same frustration Jesus is expressing as he comes down the Mount of Transfiguration. Man, if these two things aren't apparent to us, we need to pay more attention. Jesus is glorious and the world is a mess. And I think what we... The mistake we make is we look at the mess of the world and go, what we need to do is unmess the world. What we need to do is, is make changes here and changes there, and we're really close. We can get the world to where it's going to be pretty good if people would just listen to me. I have all of the right answers, but what we actually need is to behold the glory of God at the top of the mountain. Are you with me? Here's the story real quickly. Here's the story that we should be hearing. Three things. First of all, 
This is an astonishing story of awe. Both of these little passages, the transfiguration and then the healing of this boy, both end in silence. There's no party, there's awe. The disciples, Peter had been told after he said, you're the Christ of God. Jesus had said, don't tell anybody. Nobody has to tell Peter to keep his mouth closed now. He couldn't explain this if he tried. But rather, he is silent coming down the mountain. As Jesus heals this boy and does what the people around couldn't do, even the good people following Jesus couldn't do, says that they were all astonished at the majesty of Jesus. Maybe Peter doesn't tell anybody because he doesn't feel worthy of the experience he's just had. He's right. He isn't worthy. Maybe Peter doesn't tell anybody because he fully, doesn't fully understand the experience that he just had. He's right. He doesn't fully understand it. Maybe he has been pierced not only by the majesty and holiness of Jesus, but by his own unworthiness to be Jesus' disciple. We have to keep both of these things ever before us, the glory of God and our need. Are you with me? For us to see God's glory and then go, yeah, I'm worthy of that, would be foolish. But rather, you'll know you really are starting to get, get a glimpse of God's glory with instead of going, how can I harness this and make it work for me? You say, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. What could I do? There's much Christian discussion and material about behavior modification. How do you quit this or stop this? How do you be better at this and not so bad at that? And that stuff's all fine as far as it goes, but, but could we be people that don't settle for acting Christianly? Are you with me? But instead, let's, let's not try and shape ourselves and shape the world so there's a a, a vague facade of Christianity, but let us instead do all that we can to see and hear and spend time with and be in awe of the actual King of glory and show that to the world. Man, if anger and fear and worry and sin are rolling around in your heart, it is not a, a, a you know, three steps to whatever that you need. What you need is the awe of the King and Kings and Lord of Lords. I love this, uh, the bridge video that we saw earlier. What was it that changed that woman's life? She said, I was just going through the motions, doing all the steps, doing the stuff. That's all great. But then I met Jesus. Of course, we need good habits. We need strategies. I even am a big fan of the 12 steps, but first, we need to behold Him and consider ourselves. This is what I would like you to walk away thinking about. How can we behold Him for who He really is and then consider us for who we really are? We need a little bit of instruction for our lives, but we need a whole lot of awe 
Next, this is a story that points to our deepest desires being filled. This is a joyful story, and I want you to consider this. Go journal about this this week. This is a story that points to our deepest desires being filled. I don't know what you think your deepest desires are, but they are all filled in the presence of Jesus. I don't know if you feel like you need security. I don't know if you feel like you need adventure. I don't feel like if you, if you need intimacy, if you need joy, if you need rest, if you need peace. Look, Peter wakes up. By the way, isn't that a great peach picture? Like Peter woke up to the glory of Jesus, but Peter like woke up to the glory of Jesus. Are you with me? And he just wants to stay there forever. Where do you want to be? What do you want? You want your glory? Have it for a few years. Do you want the glory of Jesus? He looks at Jesus and said, Jesus, this is good. Let's build a temple right here. Peter has a touch of Jesus' glory and doesn't ever want it to leave. And I wonder if, people, if Peter recognized that at Pentecost. Peter spends another, where are we, another year maybe, maybe a year and a half following Jesus and then sees the resurrection, is one of the first few in the tomb to actually see the empty tomb, has experiences with the, uh, um, with the resurrected Jesus and then goes to an upper room in Jerusalem and waits for the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that Jesus told his disciples, it's better for me that I go because I'm going to send the comforter and when I send him, he will lead you to all truth. The glory of God is not just available sporadically on mountaintops, but rather the Holy Spirit is available to us New Testament Christians right now. What do you want? I bet your deepest desires are fulfilled most profoundly by God and His presence. Man, I'm a big fan of, uh, so I, you know, I teach at a high school and I get questions a lot that are like, you know, (coughs) why is this bad or why is this bad or how does God feel about this or, you know, why shouldn't I do this? Why shouldn't I do this? And I almost give the same answer. I think you should do whatever you think is best to do. And if you think living a debauched life is best, then I think you should do it. But I think you should consider what is it that you really want? Do you want to follow after your heart? Or do you want what Peter had on that mountain? An actual relationship with the living God. Man, lastly, this is a story that reminds us of our contrast, of of our constant need to rely on Jesus. Whether it's Moses at the burning bush or Peter on this mountain, to see God rightly is to know how badly you need him. Some of us have been walking with Jesus so long, we have gotten so comfortable, we've just forgotten how desperately we need him every day. It happens several times in the story. You see Peter's need. He's either falling asleep or he's fumbling around for words. Then they return and the rest of the disciples are completely sunk in the middle of a rebellious and evil culture, completely unable to just help this one sick kid. They need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We need Jesus. If we are going to make the world better, what do we need? If we are going to make the world better, we don't just need great human wisdom. No, what we need is 
to live in the awe of the presence of Jesus. If we're going to change ourselves, are there things about you that you would like to change? Are there sins that you would like to go? Are there worries that you would like to finally once and for all lay down at the cross? Are there insecurities that you would love to overcome? What you need is the presence of Jesus in your life. Well, then we might say, well, how? And there are moments And maybe I bet if we went around the room, we've had moments where it wasn't the transfiguration, but where we were in a place and overwhelmed by the presence of God. That's not an unusual experience for Christians, but it's not normative every day. And it's my experience that the way we experience this kind of relationship with God, this kind of of awe of Him, takes time, it takes retreat. There's a little Catholic church right across from Monastery Beach. You know what I'm talking about? Doors open all the time. Beautiful setting. Nobody talks to you. Do you have a favorite redwood tree? It takes not just five minutes in the morning, not just daily devotions, but it takes time. It takes scripture and it takes meditation. It takes fasting, it takes giving, it takes silence, it takes solitude. We're going to spend some time coming up here uh, over as we prepare our hearts for, for the Easter season, talking about spiritual disciplines. And those are not a, not a pathway to sorrow. Those are the pathway to joy. And at the end of the day, there's no one prescription for really sensing and feeling the glory of God But in the end, it is those who seek him that find him. And if you were thinking about how might you have a taste of this presence of God, I would just ask, how now are you seeking to be in the presence of God? What we need, if we're going to be better, if we're going to mature into the people God made us to be, we need the sense of awe. We need to see Jesus for who he is. And I would just close by asking you what it is that you are in awe of. You're in awe of something. Something guides your decision-making. Something makes you afraid. Something makes you silent. You love something. What is it in your life that you are in awe of? What do you love most? What are you afraid of losing? What motivates the way you live, your behavior? And I wonder if you could just spend a minute thinking about how you might be a person, that we might be a people who instead of just trying to live Christian-y kind of lives, live our lives, that we might see Jesus clearly. We might behold Him in His glory.